Let's open our Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, creeping closer to the end of this wonderful letter that Paul wrote. We're going to look at verses 35 through 58 today. The topic, while describing how the dead are raised, Paul reveals the mystery that the saints who are alive at the coming of Jesus will be changed in the twinkling of an eye. Title of our message, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Saint. Father, thank you so much for your word. We anticipate that it has a lot to say to us this morning as you speak it to us uh, by your spirit. As he takes and interprets the word itself and what is said and applies it to our lives with the goal of uh, drawing us into your grace and mercy and making us more like Jesus Christ. Guide and direct us, we pray in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Scrat may be scientifically accurate. You all know who Scrat is, right? How many of you do not know who Scrat is? Scrat is the uh, acorn-obsessed saber-toothed squirrel attempting to store his prized acorn in the Ice Age animated films. In 2012, a Russian team discovered a seed cache of Silene stenophylla, a flowering plant native to Siberia that they said, and I quote, had been buried by an Ice Age squirrel. Now, how they know that, I don't know. Maybe their go-cam was on, but anyway. The mature and immature seeds, which had been entirely encased in ice, were unearthed from 124 feet below the permafrost, surrounded by layers that included mammoth, bison, and woolly rhinoceros bones. Some of the seeds had been damaged, perhaps by the squirrel, they said, preventing them from germinating in the burrow. Other seeds retained viable plant material. The team extracted that tissue from the frozen seeds, placed it in vials, and successfully germinated the plants. They grew and flowered, and after a year, produced seeds of their own after themselves. Radiocarbon dating suggested that the seeds were 32,000 years old. Of course, that's a dirty word to young earth creationists, uh, radiocarbon. But young earth creation scientists say that the ice age was triggered by the global flood associated with Noah, and that was some 4,000 plus years ago, and that's where I would land on this debate. Either way, the seeds are considered the oldest to ever germinate, but they're not. There are much older seeds that have been sown that will most definitely come alive. I'm talking about the physical bodies of deceased believers. The Apostle Paul compares their physical bodies to seeds that have died only to be made alive by resurrection. He will also answer an important question, what will happen to the physical bodies of believers who are alive at the coming of Jesus? The two points around which I'll organize my comments on these verses couldn't be simpler. Number one, if you are asleep when Jesus comes, you will be resurrected. Number two, if you are alive when Jesus comes, you will be raptured. Let's take a look at the resurrection first in verses 35 through 49. Abel may have been the first human seed to be sown. The murder of that righteous man by his brother Cain is the first physical death in the Bible. Plenty more have followed, we might say billions and billions sown, with apologies to McDonald's. Since you definitely will be raised from the dead with some connection to your original physical body, Paul likens it to your body being asleep until it is raised. Elsewhere, he makes it clear that your spirit leaves your body at death 
to be immediately, consciously in the presence of Jesus in heaven. And so let's dig in, beginning in verse 35. Someone will say, how are the dead raised up and with what body do they come? These were probably insincere questions posed by scoffers of the resurrection. It focuses on the dead body as something that cannot possibly be reanimated. Under the best circumstances, a preserved corpse decays over time. I mean, you know, that, that's just obvious, and uh, you've seen enough television shows where they exhume the corpse and ugly. They try and preserve your body as long as they can. That's why they embalm you. I found out one time while I was negotiating a cheap funeral, it happens, that uh, embalming is not necessary. And so we save, I don't know, 25 bucks on embalming. But anyway, uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be corrupted in the grave for sure. Under the worst circumstances, a corpse can be completely destroyed by fire, lost at sea, devoured by animals. In 2019, Washington became the first state to allow human composting as a burial method. You can be turned into compost to plant a tree for your tomorrow. <laughs> What's God going to do? Can he raise you from a manure pile? Are you man or are you manure? Or maybe you're manure man, a secret superhero that goes around solving the problem of global warming. I don't know. Paul once gave a simple apologetic for the resurrection by asking rhetorically, why should it be thought incredible by you that God raises the dead? Even though that is all the answer anyone needs, Paul gave the Corinthians an illustration, and we're glad that he did. Foolish ones, verse 36, what you sow is not made alive until it dies. A seed a farmer sows has the principle of life within it, but nothing happens until the seed dies when it's buried. Until it is sown and dies, it will not bring forth life. It dies and then, in a sense, is resurrected. And what you sow, do you not sow that body that shall be me? Uh, do you not, do not sow that body that shall be but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain? But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. No one looks at a seed and says, how is a coffee plant raised up from this? Which is the first plant I'm sure all of you think of. No, we expect seeds to produce after their kind. And we understand that what is produced looks vastly different than its seed. I can identify only maybe three seeds. Pumpkin seeds, sunflower seeds, and sesame seeds. That's it. Uh, some of you have a lot more acumen in that area. You can probably, but I think you'd understand that a, a tiny seed is very different than what it produces. Likewise, there's a connection between the dead body and the resurrection body, but what is raised from it is as different as a plant is from its seed. Paul explains all manner of death as being sown. No matter the state of my corpse, elements of it are the seed sown that will bring forth a body in my resurrection. God may not have much left of me to work with, but remember, he created the entire universe out of nothing. I think they call it ex nihilo. I would have said that if I was trying to sound smart. But I've, I've quit trying to sound smart around you because you know me. That's the downside of being someplace for so long. People get to know you and they realize you're not very smart. But anyway, but you're listening to me, so how smart can you be? Verse 39. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'm sorry. I don't know. Let me, let's rewind here. And <laughs> verse 39, all flesh is not, the truth is though, I can't, don't, don't say this, but I can't joke like this with first service. They're just not. <laughs> so I have it all stored up for you. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one kind of flesh of men, another flesh of animals, another of fish, and another of birds. There are also celestial bodies and terrestrial bodies, but the glory of the celestial is one, and the glory of the terrestrial is another. There's one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. One star differs from another star in glory. Here's a concise commentary on what we just read. We see earthly bodies differ from earthly and heavenly bodies differ from heavenly. What wonder then if heavenly bodies differ from earthly or if the bodies which rise differ from those that lie in the grave? And so it's connected but different. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. A dead corpse can be described by the words corruption, dishonor, and weakness. Corruption summarizes the decay of our bodies, and we touched upon that. I don't think I need to go into that. We all know our bodies are corrupting even now. We're breaking down. Uh, you think you're doing all right? You're on a good diet? You're exercising? Think again. Getting older by the minute. Things are ready to happen to you. You're corrupting. Aren't you happy you came? <laughs> Somebody has to tell you the truth. Dishonor reminds me of just how humiliating both life and death can sometimes be. I, in my career as a law enforcement chaplain, have seen many dead bodies. And let me tell you, they're not all pretty. Uh, people die in the weirdest circumstances, positions, etc. And um, if you happen to be there as a chaplain and the coroner comes out and he needs help lifting bodies, you help him. Uh, so, but it's, you know, it's, it's humiliating. I mean, we don't joke about it or laugh about it, not in that sense, but, but you know, to see what actually happens to people, it's, it's you know, humiliating. And, and uh, even in life, as we get older, there's a lot of things that uh, are fodder for humiliation. Weakness describes the general human condition. We're fragile and subject to all manner of disease and injury. Now, don't get me wrong. We are fearfully and wonderfully made not denigrating God's creation. But the human condition isn't what it was supposed to be, and it's fallen, and it's, uh, we're, we're all in really pretty bad shape, uh, is the way I look at it, and we're headed for worse shape. Corruption, dishonor, and weakness will all give way to incorruption, glory, and power. Incorruption means my resurrection body will not be subject to decay. I'll not break down in eternity. I'll be perfect from day one. Glory will characterize my resurrection body. No humiliation. Uh, I'm, I'm, I, I'm never going to trip even in heaven, I get from this. Never going to fall and be embarrassed and be humiliated for something that happened. No hair out of place. No broccoli in my teeth. I'd even go so far as to say that. You never know. You know, it's like, should I tell them or shouldn't I? Do you ever struggle with that? Somebody has something and you think, oh, do they know that there's a giant piece of broccoli coming out of their mouth? Is that a look or what? But anyway, power indicates my glorified resurrection body will be self-sufficient. Verse 44, it is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there is a spiritual body. Because we descend from Adam, we have our current physical body. 
Because we are in Christ, we will have a spiritual, physical body. My spiritual body is not something immaterial. It will be physical. When we talk about the resurrection of the dead, including, including Jesus, we mean physical. It has substance. It's not a metaphysical or a spiritual resurrection. It's a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. Adam was a real person created by God from the dust of the earth in the Garden of Eden. Jesus confirmed that the Genesis account is literally true when he referred to Adam and Eve as a real couple whom God officiated their marriage in the book of Genesis. And so uh, those people who think that it is a, a Christian myth or some kind of a legend to, to explain creation, uh, Jesus understood it to be true. And of course, he would know because he was there. Jesus is the last Adam. He succeeded where Adam had failed. Adam exercised his free will to disobey God, thus plunging the human race and all of creation into sin and death. Jesus subordinated himself to die on the cross in our place in order to save the human race and to redeem and restore creation. When you read the Bible, you're reading the, the divine drama and romance of redemption from Genesis through Revelation, how the earth got in the state that it's in thanks to Adam, and how God is redeeming it now and will restore it by the end of the book of the Revelation. That is history. We are living beings like the first man, descended from him. We are sinners headed for physical and eternal death. When a person believes in Jesus, he gives us eternal life. Verse 46, however, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, and afterward the spiritual the first man was of the earth, made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust, so are those who are made of dust. And as is the heavenly man, so are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. Maybe it's because there's so many Marvel movies, but I, I, I like man of dust. Don't you? It's like man of steel from the DC universe. Superman's man of steel. We could have somebody who is the man of dust. When you punch him, your hand goes right through, and he goes, kind of like Sandman in the Spider-Man universe. But none of you care about that, so let me move on. Like produces like in God's universe. We all begin like Adam. We end up like Jesus. John says in his first epistle, we shall be like him. Uh, and so if you're curious about what, what does that really mean, I would uh, encourage you to go back to the Gospels and study uh, the post-resurrection appearances of Jesus because we will be like him. Uh, there's a, I wanted to get the reference. There's a, a movie, a Christian movie. I think it's Joseph Fiennes is in it and it's called Risen. I think it's called, is that what it's called? You remember that? Anybody seen that movie? Yeah, it's called Risen. They do, uh, the scene I like the most is, is this Roman centurion. He's, he's trying to find Jesus because the body is gone. And he goes, breaks into this room where all the disciples are. And as they're hanging out there, all of a sudden, Jesus is just there. He wasn't there. And then he is there. And then he's not there. And it's just, it's cool the way they handle it. And it's a really good look at uh, how things may have unfolded. It's fictional, obviously, but it's fun. And, but Jesus, he just appeared in rooms all of a sudden. And, you know, uh, and then he would disappear. Uh, he could appear on the road to Emmaus and talk, and he, he liked to disguise himself. He had a way of, of kind of keeping his, his uh, visage away from people so that he could fool them. Uh, he could travel instantaneously, it seems, from place to place. So there's some things that you can, he could eat, uh, and, and he could be touched. 
And so uh, there's a lot of things we can glean about what our body is going to be like. Now, our focus has been on the physical body itself, but having a spiritual body is far more glorious than just its physical characteristics. In the DreamWorks film Megamind, Hal receives all the physical power of Metro Man, but he remains an imbecile and goes rogue as a villain. So it's not just having the power or having the body. William McDonald explains the spiritual body like this. The difference between a natural body and a spiritual body is that the former is usually soul controlled, whereas the latter is spirit controlled. God created man's spirit, soul, and body. He always mentions the spirit first because his intention was that the spirit should be in the place of preeminence or dominance. With the entrance of sin, God's order seems to have been upset, and the result is that man is body, soul, and spirit. He has given the body the place which the spirit should have had. In resurrection, it will not be so. The spirit will be in the place of control, which God originally intended. A spiritual body is one that will be truly the servant of the spirit. Now, let me suggest one result of our finally having spiritual bodies that we can glean from putting scripture together with scripture. We will retain free will, but we will be unable to sin. There will be no second fall. First, let's be certain it's true that there will be no sin. In the Revelation we read, and this is from chapter 21, verses 4 and verse 27, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There should be no death, no sorrow, no crying. There should be no more pain for the former things have passed away. So that lets us know, among other things, that there can't be sin because the penalty for sin is death. And if there's no more death, uh, that cancels it out. And then in verse 27, there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. So nothing will ever defile eternity, and that would include sin. So the question is, how can we have free will if we cannot choose to sin? And the answer is obvious. Having genuine free will doesn't necessarily mean you can choose sin. You all know someone who has genuine free will who cannot sin, and that person is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. No one could have more free will than God. He's a free will being, but you can't even imagine that he could sin. It doesn't come on as a thought at all. Perish the thought. And so at least that tells us that it's possible to be a free will being and not be capable of sinning. He cannot sin, and it is therefore not a contradiction to say that there cannot be free will without sin. Now, we're not God, nor will we become gods in the resurrection. That's not the teaching but we will have the divine nature in perfect spiritual bodies. And that means among other things, we will enjoy a genuine free will that is incapable of sin in an eternal realm of righteousness. And you and I cannot fathom that one bit, no matter how long you've been a Christian. In fact, for some of us and some of you, the longer you've been a Christian, the more in touch with your sin you are. And so when we sit here and talk about having free will and a glorified physical spiritual body, unable to sin with Jesus and the Father and the Spirit and all the beloved saints in a realm of light and righteousness, it's crazy exciting. And so just receive that. Verses 50 to 58, if you're alive when Jesus comes, you'll be raptured. Now we here at Calvary, we're immovable on the pre-tribulation, pre-millennial return of Jesus to rapture the church. Uh, there are other ways of looking at prophecy, but we want to be right. And so uh, we do it this way. 
I'm just joking, but I'm actually serious. It's a serious joke. Whatever a person believes about his coming, it's clear that when Jesus comes, there will be saints on the earth who have not died. What happens to them? Or I would say to us, since we're alive. That's the joyous topic Paul took up next. So verse 50, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. The kingdom of God here is a reference to the eternal state or what is commonly called heaven. In the Bible, a few folks visited heaven. Isaiah and John, for example, John the apostle, both of them visited heaven. But you can't inherit heaven. You can't spend eternity there in your current body. It would be like some atmosphere or landscape that you can exist for a few moments uh, you know, here on the earth in your current body, but then you would be destroyed. Uh, you need some kind of a, a, a suit. Uh, think of an astronaut doing a spacewalk, uh, you know, that kind of a thing. You, you put on a suit, you can go out into space for a while. Without the suit, uh, I think bad things happen to you. And so, uh, so, you know, Isaiah, John, maybe a few, Paul, for one, they had a special dispensation. They had some kind of heaven suit around them, I guess, for the time that they visited heaven, but then they were back on the earth. <clears throat> you need something to happen to outfit you for heaven. I used to scuba dive, and the thing I liked most about scuba diving was the cool custom wetsuits that you could get. And so you would outfit yourself. I had one that was called a turtle skin. Uh, that was the company, and it was just, it was blue and black and all flashy and stuff. I didn't like to scuba dive, I just liked to walk around in my wetsuit. But... <laughs> of course, you find out early on why it's called a wetsuit, but anyway, I think dry suit is uh, the way I'd go now. But anyway, behold, I tell you a mystery. A Bible mystery is something revealed to you that wasn't known prior to its being revealed to you. The mystery revealed here is what happens to living believers at the return of Jesus. It's nowhere revealed in Scripture until now. Verse 51, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality." The dead in Christ will be resurrected. Living saints will be changed to be incorruption and immortal. We will immediately be transformed into our spiritual bodies. That's what that means. Jesus will come to resurrect the dead and we will immediately be transformed. The word moment when used of time refers to a unit of time that could not be divided any further. And then it talks about the twinkling uh, there's a sense in which you could say your eye has three speeds, wink, blink, and twink. We want to concentrate on the... <laughs> Trying to be scientific here. <laughs> the twinkle. Technically speaking, a twinkle is light reflected from the eye. For you to see a twinkle in someone's eye, light travels through the front of their eye, reflected off their retina, and exits their eye. How fast can that occur? I found the, fine, uh, the following calculation. It would take one-sixth times 10 to the ninth power seconds, which is one-sixth billionth of a second, to make a person's eyeball twinkle. That is how fast believers will be changed to our life at the moment Jesus comes to resurrect the dead. Not only is it fast, when it happens, it could happen any moment. The return Paul was describing is Jesus' return to remove the church from the earth, 
prior to the Great Tribulation. Now, this we generally just call this the rapture, but Paul explains elsewhere, the dead in Christ rise first, and we which are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. First only means uh, that it happens you know, milliseconds or billions of a seconds before us, but the dead in Christ are raised, and then we which are alive and remain are changed immediately, and we get our spiritual bodies. And that's what I'm going for. Uh, forget the corruption and the manure and all of that kind of stuff. Although if you guys, you know, after I die, you convince my family that you want me to be manure, that's, that's okay. Just plant me somewhere nice on your patio so you can remember me. Paul quoted from some Old Testament sources here in verse 54. So when this corruptible is put on incorruption and this mortal is put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Hades, where is your victory? Paul's quoting here from the Old Testament prophets Isaiah and Hosea. Even though those guys didn't foresee the resurrection and rapture of the church, they knew believers would be victorious over death. Death refers to dying here, and Hades refers to the afterlife. Uh, before Jesus rose from the dead, the spirits of all who died didn't go directly to heaven. They went to Hades. Hades is not hell. It is described for us by Jesus in the Gospel of Luke as a place with two chambers divided by an impassable gulf. One chamber is a place of paradise, the other a place of torment. When Jesus died, the Bible indicates that he descended into Hades and led all the believers out there who were in the paradise chamber to heaven. Now when believers die, they are absent from their bodies and immediately present with the Lord in heaven. And paradise is vacant. When non-believers die, their spirits still go to Hades, to that place of torment. There they await a resurrection which occurs after the great tribulation and after the Lord reigns on the earth for a thousand years following the great tribulation. Once they are raised from the dead, they are judged and confined to the lake of fire, more commonly referred to as hell. Death and Hades are defeated. If you are a believer, your death doesn't usher you to Hades, but it ushers you to heaven. That's one way that death is defeated. And so if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the worst thing that could happen to you is in a sense the best thing that can happen to you, and that is that you would die. You would die and be immediately consciously alive in the presence of the Lord awaiting your future resurrection. If you're not a believer here today, and we don't say this to scare you, but you ought to be afraid, uh, then if you were to die, you would be going to Hades. Your spirit would be going to Hades to await a final resurrection of the dead, of all the wicked dead, all the unrighteous dead, all the unbelieving dead from all time described in the book of the Revelation. And so that's what happens after death. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. Death, sin, and the law provide a concise summary of the Bible's teaching. Death was the penalty decreed in the Garden of Eden should Adam and Eve sin. The strength of sin is the law means that God's law reveals to human beings that they are sinners who deserve the penalty of death. So God said, sin, you sin, you die, and let me uh, give you a law to show you that you are a sinner who's going to die. Take any one of the Ten Commandments. For example, you shall not covet. Seems like ever since I mentioned this a few months ago, everywhere I look, I see a Maserati. It's mostly the logo. I'm thinking about 
getting just the logo and putting it on my Toyota. <laughs> Who would know, really? But, uh, you know, I joke about it, but there's, you know, if it was a Ferrari, I would be coveting it, and then I'd be in sin. But uh, everyone has it sometime coveted, and that is sin. And that's what the law tells me, to, that when I do that, I'm in sin. And if I'm in sin, if I'm sinning, well, guess what? What's the penalty for sin? It's physical death followed by uh, eternal death in Hades. And so that's what Paul is talking about. Verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Victory over sin and over death and over the law. And as a guarantee of our future rapture and resurrection, we have the indwelling of God, the Holy Spirit. And in yielding to him, we overcome sin now. And so there's just a lot at play here. And then finally, verse 58, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor, it's not in vain in the Lord. This is a pretty straightforward exhortation. I don't think it needs much commentary. Uh, one thing I do want to note is that it comes at the end of Paul's discussion of the resurrection and the rapture of the church. And it seems like whenever Paul talked about that, he saw it as a motivation to holy and helpful living, to our own sanctification and to our serving uh, Jesus Christ. Far too many churches are failing to emphasize future prophecy. And worse yet, they ridicule those who do emphasize it. Uh, I've heard a few messages over the years, and some lately, as a matter of fact, uh, where decent churches, good churches, good people, but from the pulpit, they, they're denigrating this idea of prophecy. Now, one reason I think that uh, they do that, uh, perhaps, is because so many people make a joke out of Bible prophecy. As I said earlier in our prophecy update, they see prophecy everywhere. Uh, you know, every number, uh, every altercation, every hurricane, every fire, every law passed in the state of California, uh, you know, <laughs> which <laughs> that might be true, but uh, you, you know what I mean? I mean, you can be sensational about it, and we try not to do that. You don't have to be sensational because the things that are happening are sensational, so we don't have to sensationalize it. But for whatever the reason, uh, there's this this kind of you know, denigrating of prophecy being taught, uh, scoffing at it. And, and the, uh, the flip side of it is they, they say, hey, we want to strengthen your life. We don't want to spend time, you know, arguing about the rapture or when Jesus is going to come because we're, we want you to have a better Christian life and to know how to walk with the Lord and stuff like that. Well, Paul says, hey, you want to do these things. You want to be steadfast, immovable, and abound in the work of the Lord then, uh, and know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord you might want to think about the fact that the Lord could come at any minute. Because just between you and me, uh, you know, before I was a Christian, and sadly, maybe sometimes after I was, uh, if the boss wasn't around, I, you might not work as hard. You should, if you're a Christian, you should work hard all the time. But you know, you know what I mean. You know, it's like, hey, where's the boss? He's nowhere to be found. I was pretty stupid when I was a young kid, stupider than I am now. But um, I remember one time I worked at a title uh, plant and uh, title industry. And so one time, me and the boss and some other people were sitting around having a beer after, after work hours. Like By after work hours, I meant like 5.05. Uh, but, uh, and so we're having a beer, and, and out of nowhere, the owner of our company, the head honcho who had established, he came walking in to the branch. Uh, he, he was in Orange County. He, he hung out in Orange County. We were in Riverside, so we didn't expect him. 
So he comes in and um, he was, you know, very uh, reserved about it, but he says, oh, uh, hey, uh, did you guys you close a big deal today and you're celebrating? And that was his way of saying, I hope you're not just drinking beer after work at 5.05. And uh, so, and I was pretty stupid. I go, no, we're just having a beer. <laughs> It wasn't good, but anyway, it wasn't pretty. But, uh, you know, so uh, the thing about it is Jesus could return imminently. And, and I don't know anything that could be more motivating, not from a point of view of fear, like, oh, man, I, I hope the Lord doesn't catch me at Frozen 2. <laughs> Which I liked it. But anyway, I thought it was better than the first, and the uh, songs were much better too. But anyway, it's not that I'm afraid, although some people should be afraid. It's that what can I get done before the Lord comes back? How much can I do, and who can I talk to, and, and how much can I accomplish? Not for the sake of the work itself, not that it's going to make me any better or, or earn me anything, but just because I love the Lord. And I'd like him to say to me, well done, Gene. That was, that was great. You could have slacked off there, but... Uh, that was great that you kept moving forward. Uh, you were abounding and immovable. And, and I gave you this little work to do, and you did it, and you were faithful. Or I gave you this great work to do, and you did it, and you were faithful. So because we want to please the Lord. Who wouldn't want to please Jesus? If you don't want to please Jesus, uh, there's something wrong with you, and you need to get in touch with that. And so do you want to be the believer in Christ described in verse 58? You want that resume? I would say, of course. Then embrace the mystery which in this case means that Jesus could return imminently for his church. Let's pray.